0: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Matthew He He's the author of Police and the Empire City, Race and the Origins of Modern Policing in New York. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Very happy to be here to discuss the book.
0: So just for listeners, uh, both of us have a little bit of a cold. If you're, if you're hearing that in our voices, you're not wrong, but I'm so happy to have the chance to talk about this book with you. One of the things that uh, immediately struck me was your choice of the phrase Empire City to describe New York in terms of policing, and that was not accidental, I am sure. Um, I was really interested by the lens you took showing how much colonial administration impacted New York Police Department's during the time period that you're looking at. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Empire City just became a useful moniker, both because it is, you know, what people call New York City, and also because, you know, around the turn of the century, starting in, I think, 1903 and between 1903 and the 1920s, one of the primary characteristic that was useful when choosing a police commissioner in New York was their proximity to the U.S. empire. So you had police commissioners who had been generals uh, in the invasion of the Philippines. They had taken part in the uh, commission that thought about what was the best way to govern the Philippines. You had, you know, governors of the Panama Canal Zone who were in contention for becoming the police commissioner. And so I argue in the book that because... In a very short period of time, New York City became so diverse and so multilingual and so multi-ethnic that the people who had the best expertise to try to subordinate a city like that were people who had been out in the empire, who had experience and trying to bring, quote unquote, order to, you know, diverse multilingual archipelagos like the Philippines.
0: Now, someone who gets a fair amount of time in your book is General Francis Vinton Green, and he seems like a really great example of this. Could you talk a little bit about who he was and what he did for the New York Police Department?
1: Yeah, Green Green is a fascinating figure. I mean, there are a lot of people in this book that I think kind of show up in unexpected places and they meander their way through the 1880s through the 1920s and pop up in all sorts of different bureaucracies and all sorts of different agencies. Um, And one of these people is Francis Vinton Green, who is a son of a Civil War veteran. Uh, He was a general in the Civil War. He goes to West Point. He uh, is dispatched along the U.S.-Canadian border where he helps to kind of map the expanded country westward. Then he is sent to Russia where he is an attaché to the Russian military in the Russo-Turkish War. And so he has his his fingers all over the place. He pops up in all these different places and then becomes a brigadier general in the invasion of the Philippines. And he he serves in the Philippines only very shortly. And he's asked to get on a ship and come back to Washington, D.C. And while he is on this ship uh, in the time it takes him to get back to Washington, he writes a full report up for William McKinley about how he thinks the US ought to govern the Philippines. And McKinley was, you know, presumably so impressed with this report that he immediately sends him down to Cuba, where he takes control of the municipal government in Havana. Part of this is reorganizing the Havana Police Department. And then he retires from the military. And a few years later, he pops up as the 1903 commissioner for the New York City Police Department. So he brings all of this colonial experience, all of this military experience into the role of police commissioner. And he notices very early on that a lot of the intellectual problems he was thinking about in the Philippines and in Cuba are, are exactly the, the types of problems that police are facing in New York, namely that the population is so diverse and so multilingual, and the people who are supposedly policing them are so, you know, American-born and just English-speaking. And so Francis Fenton Green is really kind of an archetype of so many figures in this period who are in and out of the empire, industry, the military, and who eventually wind their way into policing.
0: And let's define the period we're talking about, because you are very specific. You say that you're covering the period of 1845 through the 1930s. And I really enjoyed a description that you had of this time period. I thought it was very evocative. It encompasses the moment when police transitioned from a more informal collection of pugilists clad in wool coats to what we can recognize today as a modern professionalized police department. So for listeners, this is the time period that the book uh, is really looking at. And how did you come to find your cutoffs? Obviously, the beginning is pretty easy. It's the beginning of the New York Police Department. And there's been a lot of myth-making about that beginning. But what made you decide on a 1930s cutoff?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I I started it at the... The beginning of the NYPD, in part because I wanted to argue that there was no mythical time in which the NYPD were not involved in racial management. There was no magical time in the early days of policing in America where police were not 100 percent invested in the ideas of race and ethnicity as being fully entwined with with policing. Um, And then in terms of the cutoff, I wanted to get more into prohibition policing. Uh, And I think had I had more time and had, you know, COVID lockdowns not kept me out of the archives, I probably would have had one more chapter dedicated to prohibition policing in the 1920s. But instead, I, I really, you know, located this moment where the book ends as being the emergence of the policing that we recognize today as being the moment when police are fully invested in this idea of professionalization, bureaucratization, standardization. And this moment where police go from people who are just kind of, you know, fighters who you can send onto the street to, you know, kind of pacify people by force. Um, and you get the, the emergence of the idea of like police as scientist, police as social worker, where, you know, police should be one part uh, social worker, one part chemist to, who are trained in forensic sciences, kind of the Sherlock Holmes-esque police as scientist archetype kind of really gets enshrined in the police department. And I and I really have identified the nineteen thirties as the time where this really kind of congeals and consolidates. And then policing emerges from there uh, in a fashion that we would very much recognize as being the type of policing that we we see on the streets today.
0: You refer to the people who are trying to intellectualize the policing system and you know make these improvements as police intellectuals and, and you bring up the term violence workers as well. A lot of these people, I think if you had asked them at the time, and this is probably holds true with a lot of people from the progressive era, genuinely thought, I am doing something to make the world a better place. And then you see what occurred from their work, and it's appalling. They genuinely thought they were doing science when they were measuring the heads of every, you know, Chinese immigrant they came across, and that they were making strides and oh, now we're going to be able to see the width of someone's nose and and know how criminal they are. What was it like for you going through the archives and reading some of this, you know, first-person testimony? Were you seeing a lot of parallels with some of the, you know, scientific endeavors going on today? There Are companies trying to use AI to do things like determine who is safe to let out on parole? But- it feels eerily close to the eugenicist progressive era science to me often. I would just love to hear your perspective on that, having looked at the progressive era so closely.
1: Yeah, I mean, looked at the progressive era and also my my day job as, as, as a policy analyst at a civil liberties legal nonprofit. So working on this book at night and then going out into work at the day and thinking about... AI and the way police use machine learning um, really kind of gave me a, a sense of vertigo almost because I realized that I was fighting the same arguments uh, historically as I was in my in my day job and so yeah I mean I I think it's important to take a step back and say you know police cannot po- police crime crime is like an amorphous thing that people commit crime is an action you can't really police crime so. Since the beginning, police have had to do a calculus, which is who is most likely to commit crime and how do I surveil and police those populations who I have deemed most likely to commit crime? Because otherwise crime is just, you know, it's out there. It's in the ether. And so the thing about writing this book is that I was – I'm writing about a time in the late 19th, early 20th century in which to talk about crime and who you police was – deliberately to talk about race and ethnicity. Like, if you were to ask um, somebody in the early 20th century, they would not see talking about crime and talking about race as like two separate things. They were very much entwined because, you know, there were very much ideas about what races were responsible for what crimes, who was biologically predisposed to commit violence, and that in order to better society. Those were the people you had to police. And so the story of kind of the 20th century as we went on is the story of how do we change policing just enough rhetorically so that we're talking about policing certain peoples without talking explicitly about policing race. This is the kind of rise of colorblind policing, which, as we know, um, is rhetorically colorblind, but it is not really colorblind if we look at the statistics of, you know, who is Disproportionately ticketed, arrested, surveilled, incarcerated, etc. Uh, and so, you know, when you think about when you think about like early criminal anthropology, you had people like Cesare Lombroso in Italy who would go into prisons and he would measure, you know, twelve different measurements of of these people in prison: the width of the nose, the length of the nose, the distance between the eyes, fingers, circumference of head, all these things, um, and he would make generalizations about, okay, so all of these people in prison look a certain way. Therefore, other people who look that way must also be criminal. But of course, we see how bias can seep into this. We see that if in Italy in the 1880s, police are much more likely to arrest Sicilians, for instance, because they police have the impression that Sicilians are biologically predisposed to crime, then of course if you went into a prison filled with Sicilians and you took their measurements, the measurements you're going to come up with are those that most are alike the measurements you would get off the average Sicilian person. And so if you were look, using those characteristics to try to find other criminals, you would end up criminalizing other Sicilians for instance. Um, and so you get this this bias that seeps its way into the data. And so if you use that data to predict next who will be a criminal, you're going to just have a self-fulfilling prophecy on your hands. That is very much true of the type of statistical analysis and the type of kind of machine learning predictive policing algorithms we see now, um, which is if you Uh, If police believe, for instance, that African-Americans are most likely to commit crimes, if a vast proportion of the people who are arrested in the United States are black, and they put all of these things into uh, statistics, then guess what the statistics are going to tell you? That the people most likely to commit crimes in the future are black. But really, it is confirmation bias because that's who policing are arresting disproportionately anyway. You know, if you put any neighborhood under a microscope, like police put black neighborhoods in America, you're going to find jaywalkers. You're going to find vandals. You're going to find people who are drunk in public or you know smoking a joint on their stoop. And so when you put only specific neighborhoods under these kind of microscopes and that's what generates all the arrests, then you're going to have an algorithmic system that's going to tell you that only a specific type of person is more likely to commit crimes. And, and this is as true in the late 19th century as it is now. That you have science is being used as a tool to kind of launder and legitimize a style of policing, which is now and always has been racially biased.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our advertisers. When we return, we're going to talk about the Irish cop. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, still here with author Matthew Goriglia author of Police and the Empire City, Race and the Origins of Modern Policing in New York. I was really fascinated by the stories you told about the Irish cop, the myth of the Irish cop, and German Americans, and the way that becoming a policeman was seen as a route to power, to whiteness, to acceptance. And there was an awful lot of myth-making that went into ideas of, oh, well, the Irish are ideally suited to be, to be police officers. And one of the reasons it hit, too, was uh, that was in in my family. there There is a lineage there. Michael James O'Donoghue came over on a boat from Ireland in the 1850s. By the 1870s, he was a police court judge and had married the sister of an alderman, so Chicago politics. And similar things were happening in New York. So, can you talk about how both the Irish and the German immigrants were fed into this, this system and what they gained from it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, upon arrival, the Irish um, in the 1840s encountered a brand new police department. And the way you got appointed to the police department wasn't, you know, sending in an application, um, it was that your alderman, your local elected official, had to appoint people. And this was seen as a really important, lucrative job. It was a steady paycheck. You worked for the city. And so it was kind of a route to social mobility, to economic mobility, to a better life. And so aldermen would appoint people to the police department in exchange for votes. You know, if you, if your kinship network, if your family, if your friends, if they all vote for me, I will give you, I will bestow upon you this good kind of middle class life, which comes with, um, not just social and economic mobility, but the badge and the blue uniform, you know, entitles you to a certain amount of respect in American society. It allows you to prove that you belong in American life. Um, And so I very much argue that when uh, the first generation of a new ethnic group gets included onto the police force, it allows them... To uh, be a kind of the vanguard for their their uh, community into whiteness, into belonging, uh, and this is because you know, with a better salary and with the respect comes, you know, a real feeling like you belong. But also because you know, if if the the uh, the whetstone of if the forge of American life is you know blackness and whiteness, um, then. People like the Irish, who were kind of seen as not quite white but also not black, could forcibly differentiate themselves from black Americans by doing violence, by, by taking part in uh, the kind of white supremacist project of keeping um, African Americans in, uh, in a marginalized place in society. And, and what this looked like in the 1850s was Irish police officers and the NYPD in general helping to enforce slavery you know, there's this kind of adage that, you know, all of policing in America comes from slave patrols. And, and while institutionally that's not quite true in terms of, like, slave patrols in Georgia or South Carolina, like, don't have a lot of institutional connections to the NYPD. Um, Very, very early on into the existence of the New York City Police Department, one of their primary tasks is to enforce the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, which said that if somebody had escaped from slavery in the South, and they came to a free state in the North, and they were caught, they were supposed to be returned. Uh, And the NYPD very much took this upon themselves. There were cops who were known to be sympathetic to Irish slaveholders. And, you know, I've seen stories in which uh, slaveholders in the South would write letters to specific cops they knew were sympathetic and send them money and ask them to go, you know, infiltrate the black community in New York and try to find the person they were looking for who had escaped. So from very early on, Irish cops and German cops could could kind of prove their belonging in American society, could prove their whiteness by taking part in the system of slave patrolling.
0: Not only that, but one of the things that in reading I found a little bit emotionally crushing, as you point out, That the other way a cop is expected to show their devotion to the higher order of, of control is you have to display willingness to crush the people from your community, too. Irish cops were praised when they violently put down Irish immigrant riots. In no way am I saying I don't think that Irish immigrants should be stopped from burning down, for example, a convent orphanage full of black children during draft riots. But it is interesting that that is a loyalty pledge that it seems to kind of come up again and again, not only with, uh, you mentioned the Irish and German cops, but also once black officers enter the force, there's an expectation that you will be willing to be violent towards people from your community.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean and and it's so interesting to think about, you know, there's this huge concern in the latter half of the 19th century about specifically Irish riots. And you know, part of this is like the the 1863 draft riots in which um people concerned about both the Civil War draft and also what what, you know, trying to find work as an Irish immigrant would be like if suddenly slavery had been emancipated. So there were all these riots in New York that specifically targeted, you know, the military um, institution. It targeted uh, black New Yorkers. But what was interesting is that statistically speaking, uh, a majority of the police force at this time would also have been Irish Catholic. And so if you look at even just visual depictions from the time, You see... You know the the rioters are depicted as the Irish rioters are depicted as like downright ape right ape like uh, that they they are like kind of small and shriveled and kind of barbaric looking um, and the police officers are tall and they are very you know white and they have these long blue uniforms which don't have even a single wrinkle on them. But statistically speaking, these are the same people fighting each other, so you can have this kind of visual depiction as time goes on of um, the the type of respect and the type of um, inherent kind of whiteness and American belonging that, that visually comes with, um, being willing to fight against your own community. And I think this constitutes a kind of proto thin blue line wherein you have officers who are choosing the badge and their insular community of policing over their, their larger kind of ethnic community. And I think it kind of begins to create this chasm, um, that we still kind of look at to this day in which police, uh, really identify themselves as, quote, unquote, blue lives, as in they see their profession as a kind of an ethnic group in and of itself.
0: Well, we have talked a lot about the Irish. And one of the really interesting things that you make clear is there really were different things happening to the different racial ethnic populations at the same time. So this may be what the Irish immigrants were experiencing. I would love to, to talk about Black New Yorkers and the NYPD for a second. One thing I found pretty startling was the first Black NYPD officer was not hired until 1911. You bring up a reformer, uh, Reverend Reverdy Ransom, who really thought, you know, if we can get Black cops into the NYPD, we can, you know, help stop police brutality 1911 is pretty late. Going back again to my Chicago roots, the first black police officer was hired in Chicago in 1871. That was James L. Shelton. So this is literally 40 years difference. Why did it take so long for black people to be hired into the NYPD and what did they find once they got there?
1: I think um, in part it was because the black population of New York was very small compared to cities which had much, uh, many more black officers earlier on, like Chicago, Pittsburgh, and Philadelphia. But also, you know, what's interesting is it took a tremendous amount of activism on the part of the black community in New York uh, to get the first black officer appointed. And this was because uh, in the community they really thought that having more black officers would curb police brutality, that that black officers would be least likely to kind of unleash a barrage of indiscriminate clubbing on the community in the same way that white officers were. But also, um, a, a lot of uh, kind of people who were, you know, disciples of Booker T. Washington and who were interested in uplift and black respectability politics also believed that black officers could help, like Irish officers, kind of lead... The Black community's way into greater belonging, because you know a black officer could could model civic participation. they would have a knowledge of the community that would allow them to pick on just the quote unquote troublemakers who are holding the community back and And what was interesting about it is the black community in New York. A lot of people made the argument, um, in relation to the first generation of immigrant officers. Like, yeah, you know, there is a, a quote from the New York Age, the largest black newspaper that, you know, the Italians have their the Italian community in New York has their officers. The Russian community has their officers. The Jewish community has their officers. Where's our, um, where's our, uh, local officers who, who know our community and who know us very well? And so it took a tremendous amount of activism and putting a lot of political pressure on the mayor and the chief of police to get Samuel Battle appointed.
0: We're going to take another break to hear from our advertisers. When we return, we'll still be discussing Police and the Empire City, Race and the Origins of Modern Policing in New York. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. We have not really gotten into one of my favorite parts of the book, which is, I believe it's chapter five the Italian squad. So the Italian squad specifically only lasted for five years, but I, let's tell the listeners about it. What was the Italian squad's purpose? 1904 to 1909, what was happening?
1: How did it end? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there is there is no way to fully articulate how wild it is to go back into the archives and read how afraid people were of Italian crime. They They really kind of saw Italians as kind of partly unassimilable, partly like biologically built to do crime. And they really kind of understood this – like they kind of pictured this this shadowy cabal in which any crime committed in Italian neighborhoods or any crime committed by Italians in general in the United States was linked by um, what they called the Black Hand, which is like kind of, I guess, a, a giant – all-consuming early understanding of the mafia, um, which is combined with, like, you know, the, the boogeyman and, and this idea that there's this big international shadowy organization that orchestrated all crime in the world as committed by Italians. Um, and so there was just a, a panic that the police department um, in 1903 and 1904, as it was uh, constituted, was not equipped to infiltrate Italian communities, to solve crimes in Italian neighborhoods. And so uh, they, they drew on the idea of, quote, unquote, native police from empire. And they said, well, let's get a centralized squad where we'll grab every Italian speaking officer from the city will put them in the centralized squad under police headquarters and they will be the the people responsible for trying to solve crimes in Italian neighborhoods. Whenever a crime seemed like it had an Italian flair to it they were the ones who were dispatched and the squad went from 6 people in 1904 to over 100 people by 1909 this is how much uh, resources they really thought they had to sink into the squad in order to police Italian crime.
0: The Italians do seem to have been real targets of this scientific racism. I I remember, you know, in the 1990s, first reading the Agatha Christie novel Murder on the Orient Express, and uh, there are things said in there about how, well, it's a knife crime. Italians do knife crime. It must be the Italians. (laughs) Things like this that nowadays... You know, you hear me laughing and it feels comical, but it wasn't comical at the time uh, to be a targeted member of an immigrant population. How did the Italian squad's time end? And could you tell us a little bit about Joseph Petrosino?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Joseph Petrosino was the first Italian detective on the NYPD, and he was given, uh, the Italian squad to make as his own. So he was the leader of the Italian squad. Um, he had, you know, joined the NYPD earlier than most people, I think in the 1880s, um, more earlier than most Italians. And, um, there was a, a moment where um, it seemed like the Italian squad, because there was only a hundred of them, because they were all fairly well known, that they were having less and less impact when it came to kind of infiltrating criminal circles uh, or solving crimes because everybody kind of knew and recognized them as, as detectives, as members of the Italian squad. And so starting in 1909, there was a kind of tactic shift where there was a thing called the 1903 Immigration Act. And what it said was a person who had committed a crime overseas could be deported away from the United States because the, the way a person could legally come to the United States is only if they had never uh, been arrested for a crime. And so in conjunction with the State Department, with Italian authorities, the NYPD sent Joseph Petrosino armed with a list of Italians in New York they hoped to deport. They sent him to Sicily where they said, go visit a bunch of police stations and see if you can find any arrest records of these people so that when you can get back, we can just deport them. We can just kick them out of the country. Uh, And he went to Sicily and he was assassinated he was killed. And it was a huge international incident. You know, his his funeral was actually in 1909, pretty early on, his funeral was actually filmed and played in early movie houses in Italy and in the United States because uh, he was so famous and it was such a big international incident. And so the Italian squad was dissolved after Petrosino's death. In part because it didn't seem like the Italian squad was having the effect people wanted it to, but also because the police commissioner uh, was a man named Theodore Bingham, who was incredibly, incredibly xenophobic. He was like a real advocate in the shutting down kind of all immigration to the United States. Um, he had written several books about what they called the white slave panic, which is this idea that black and immigrant men uh, were sexually exploiting white women, that it was a kind of um, sexual slavery that was only affecting white women. And this was a kind of moral panic that had reached you know every corner of the government, police, politicians, there was legislation about how to address the white slave panic. And because immigrant men were kind of deemed to be such a large part of this panic, um, they really kind of wanted to wrest power away from immigrant men, even on the police force. And so the Italian squad was dissolved, and that kind of ends the era of, of this kind of ethnic policing.
0: There are other times when the NYPD decides that it needs to really focus on a specific ethnic group. And it's a time of crisis. And what I'm trying to bring up here is the sinking of the General Slocum, which a steamship sank and, and killed members, predominantly from Kleindeutschland, German speakers. And they realized, wait, we need to find and communicate with the survivors. You tell the story better than we'll tell the story better than I will. So, could you talk about that specific incident where? a city tragedy meant they had to lean on a specific group of cops to deal with a specific ethnic group.
1: And what's fascinating is this is all happening all at once. The Italian squad and the German squad all happened in the same year, 1904. And they all demonstrate the ways in which police are concerned that they have built a department which is mostly, you know, American-born English speakers, and all the ways in which that really fails to police the modern diversifying city. And so the General Slocum Disaster is a um, a German-speaking church that is planning for their big Sunday picnic outing. And they all, uh, a bunch of people from this church, a lot of them are children because a lot of it is uh, people who attend Sunday school, all get on this boat and they're going to head up to an island north of the city, up the East River, where they're going to have this picnic. And the Boat catches fire. It sinks in the East River just off the coast of the Bronx. Over or at least very close to a thousand people die that day. Um, it is a, a horrific tragedy. is the deadliest incident in, in New York City until September 11th. What happens is they have all these bodies that they need to identify. Um, so many of the survivors, so many of the families waiting to hear if their children are okay are only speak German. And so the NYPD creates this short-lived German squad, um, which is, you know, not having to do with crime like the Italian squad, but is a reaction to this tragedy where they rally uh, just about every German-speaking officer from all the different precincts in the city uh, for a short-term reorganization to be this centralized squad where all they're doing is they're canvassing German neighborhoods. They're asking if they had uh, any relatives or children who were on that boat that day. They try to work the morgues to get IDs for the bodies. A lot of the bodies are still never identified. Um, and so it becomes this short-lived experiment. And, you know, needing to, in the wake of a tragedy, organize all the German-speaking police officers so they can respond to this in real time and kind of interface with the German community, which it turns out the NYPD didn't have a lot of ability to do until they created this squad.
0: We've talked about the way that, quote unquote, racial science, crime science, was pointed outwards towards the communities being policed. But The NYPD during this time period, the progressive era, also had a lot of anxiety when it came to the characteristics of their own officers. And I found your section in the book on this fascinating. Uh, (laughs) There was a claim that 28% of all illnesses were due to um, improper chewing, which I love. Could you talk a little bit about what the NYPD did internally focused on its officers and their bodies and their racial characteristics and their diets. And it it just was fascinating.
1: And this is kind of the importation of things from what they called industrial science into policing. So if you think about, like, Fordism and Taylorism, the idea that workers could be made to be more productive by, you know, teaching them to tuck their elbow in 20%. So when they pull this lever, it puts less pressure on their shoulder. You know, this idea that you could make a science of working and of workers to make, uh, to maximize production and to maximize productivity. This did find its way into policing as well. And so there's this fascination with, you know, cops, how do we extend their productivity? How do we extend their careers? And so they part of it is, well, cops don't stand well, you know, and they, and they x-ray police's feet and they say, you know, you might not believe it because you've been standing your whole life, but the science can tell us that you've been standing wrong, actually. And the same thing was true of, of chewing and of eating. And it's this idea that, you know, we are going to build you from the ground up. And all of this is to create a standardized officer who is effective and everywhere and effective at all times. So it's not just you know an Italian officer who's effective in the Italian community. It's we're going to send you to language classes so that you have a little bit of language knowledge so we can put you in any neighborhood and you'll be effective. We're going to teach you how to fight properly and how to stand properly and how to run properly. So no matter what you're called upon or asked to do, you can do it in a way that is healthy and that prolongs your career.
0: I will say, just to kind of close out our discussion, what I took away as a reader from police and the Empire City was a lot of the feeling is everything that is old is new again. The conversations that were happening back in this time period seem to happen today. You talk about the NYPD being involved in international efforts to discuss policing. And I saw that the NYPD was competing in a, international event called the International SWAT Challenge Games in the United Arab Emirates alongside Chechen Death Squad folks. And it didn't seem like a great idea, but 87 SWAT teams from 48 countries. And it struck a chord because I'm like, well, you know what? I'm just reading this book in which not Dissimilar things were being tried back at the turn of the 20th century where, you know, international communities agree on, oh, what's the best type of of policing and how are we going to keep down these specific populations? Is that what you were hoping people would take from the book? What did you leave uh, the writing of Police and Empire City feeling, thinking, hoping readers would take away?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that is certainly one of the things I I hoped people would would find in the book is, you know, I I think there's this assumption that if you look at police all over the world, police kind of look alike and they kind of act alike to the extent where you have international competitions from 40 countries where they all have SWAT teams that are similar enough that they could compete in the same competitions. Um, And I think the idea is, you know, there's a temptation to say, Well, police must be a natural outcropping, a natural product of modern society, because how else would all these societies land on this exact same uh, institution kind of naturally? Uh, And I think what I really wanted to show in the book is that there's absolutely nothing natural about it, is if police look alike and act alike and and use similar equipment and technology and tactics all over, it's because it was meticulously built and shared and imported and exported. And and empire certainly played a big part of this. But it's the idea that international marginalization, like state violence, especially along racial and gendered and class terms, is a shared global endeavor. That all of these countries kind of collaborate And how best to subordinate their own populations. And they, they've always kind of shared tactics and shared technologies and shared methodologies um, to the extent that the reason why all places look alike is is because of a century or more of incredibly deliberate collaboration, that this is all part of a shared endeavor. And I really hope that comes across in the book because, you know, from the 19th century on, uh, police are in contact with one another. I recently uh, had somebody who was kind of trolling me on Twitter who read a review of the book and they said something like, you mean to tell me that in the 19th century, cops are sending like telegrams over the ocean to compare notes? And the answer is like, actually, yes, that's exactly what's happening. But it's not just telegrams, it's letters. um, It's a lot of departments are sending kind of emissaries where they're going abroad, they're embedding themselves in a police department, they're learning everything they can and they're bringing it back. It looks like something like world's fairs or meetings of international chiefs of police where where cops are getting together from all over the world to share the latest technologies. Um, You know, something like fingerprinting was tested uh, in India under British occupation of India brought back to Scotland Yard in London, where Scotland Yard then brought it to the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair and introduced it to the United States and their police. So you can actually see these technologies uh, move across the world over time. Um, And so if you think about something like, uh, you know, an international SWAT competition, or if you think about how the NYPD has now, I think, 13 international outposts in countries around the world, you realize that that policing is just incredibly international and, collab- and incredibly collaborative.
0: Well, it's a good thing they were sending those telegraphs because you point out, you said, since its creation, the NYPD has been a diligent destroyer of its own archive. So your research into the book, was not made easy by a beautiful central repository of all the NYPD's historic documents. How did you find and report the things that you write about in Police and the Empire City?
1: Yeah, So in 1921, the NYPD took almost a century of records to a paper mill in New Jersey and destroyed all of it. So there is uh, almost no internal documentation for the NYPD before 1921. Um, And even still, um, you know, when you go to the municipal archives in New York, the NYPD don't really have an archive there. What you have to do is you have to find the places where the NYPD interfaced with other city agencies. So with the mayor's office, with the park's office, and this kind of gives you a sense of what was happening in the NYPD at the time. I also had the benefit of hundreds upon hundreds of criminal court transcripts that still exist that I could, you know, hear testimony from officers, I could hear testimony from people who thought they had been wrongfully uh, arrested, I could hear testimony from, you know, the defense attorneys and the judges, um, and that was a really interesting insight. But also I had the benefit of, um, one, because so many NYPD commissioners were, became politicians or were in the military or were from. Notable political families. A lot of them left huge archives. People like Theodore Roosevelt or Francis Vinton Green. They left these archives, these papers with their with their personal effects. And also, a lot of cops themselves wrote memoirs. I, you know, I, I find it so interesting that I think it's it's a product of prohibition that. A lot of cops who, you know, were fighting multinational, you know, bootlegging gangs who were armed with machine guns and had World War One era military training. Um, a lot of cops who were who were really frightened by the development of crime uh, wrote these really nostalgic memoirs about what life was like as a cop in that era, in like the eighteen nineties and nineteen hundreds, nineteen tens, as a kind of nostalgic. Um, way to remember an era before big multinational crime syndicates or whatever. Um, And and a lot of those people who wrote those memoirs just happened to also be early generations of immigrant officers, which gave me a real interesting window into their worldview and, and where they felt like they belonged both on the force and in the city.
0: Well, Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the Modern Law Library to discuss police and the Empire City, race, and the origins of modern policing in New York. If people are interested in getting the book or maybe in reaching out and discussing some of the topics with you, how would you suggest they do that?
1: On social media, you can find me on on Twitter and, and Blue Sky. You know, you can find me at my day job working uh, in civil liberties technology policy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, and you can, you know, buy Police in the Empire City wherever books are sold but, uh, and is published by Duke University Press. And thank you
0: to my listeners for joining us for this episode. If you have suggestions on the next book I should read and talk about, you can always reach me at books at abajournal.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service. It's a big help.